21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. I'm launching the book August 16th. And it is about the methodology that underpins remote work. And no one actually has, there's no book that's ever been written on the actual management philosophy towards remote workers and how they're different from actual in-office environments. And we have this methodology that we propose in the book called asynchronous management. The ability to be able to manage people without actually interacting with them synchronously, meaning on Zoom calls or face-to-face. This is what I've studied when we looked at all of the remote pioneers that were remote before the pandemic and were remote from day one. They built this methodology. And so that's the thesis of the book. And we unpack that and kind of teach that to the 99% of people that went remote during the pandemic that didn't actually figure out how to work remotely. They only figured out how to work from home, which is ironically not remote work. You're just replacing the office for your house. How did your startup go from concept to reality? So I, almost 13, 14 years ago, actually longer than that, but 13, 14 years ago is when we really started the concept of Time Doctor, which is one of the SaaS products that we have. And it was born out of the problem that I had, my frustration of running a previous business, which was an online tutoring company. So. I would bill a student for 10 hours, and then the student would come back to me and say, I didn't actually work with my tutor for 10 hours, I worked with him for five. And I'd have to go to the tutor and say, did you work with the student for five or 10? Say, I billed you for 10, it was 10 hours. I'd end up having to refund the student for five hours and pay the tutor the full 10 hours to be able to keep that person working for me. And this was really destroying the business. So I needed a third party source of truth for the amount of time that one person did a task for someone else through software. Uh, And that was Time Doctor, which is a time tracking tool specifically built for remote teams. And we started that back in 2011. Um, We also started another thing about five years ago, born out of my other frustration, which was we were trying to figure out how to scale to become a remote unicorn, right? So you always talk about unicorns, these billion dollar valuation companies, And we were trying to figure out, well, how do we get to 500 people remotely? How do we get to 1,000 people remotely? We started Googling stuff and we found that there was no information on that. Uh, It was incredibly frustrating. There was lots of information about how to become a digital nomad or how to hire a virtual assistant, but there were no companies taking remote work seriously at that point. And so it was a ready fire aim concept that I had, which was let's just get a venue. So we got this venue in Ubud, Bali in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And if I could get a lot of my friends that I know are really good at building and scaling remote teams to come and speak at it, then we can create an environment where even if I lose money, I'll end up learning a lot. And maybe I can unlock some of these secrets about building and scaling remote teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, thankfully, we actually ended up breaking even on that one, which was great ended up doing another one and making some profit. And uh, we've evolved that for almost the last five years. And the next one is actually happening 
May 17th to 18th in Montreal, Canada, which is uh, going to be very exciting because we're getting back to in-person events, which I've been missing for many years. I suggest any entrepreneur that's thinking about starting a business, really start with scratching your own itch. What were the initial actions after, after the initial notion? So when we started, uh, we had a very, I'd call it pretty messy alpha of the software. And we put together a freemium version. So people were able to use it completely for free in the early days. And then uh, I believe mid 2012, I think in the early summer of 2012, mm -hmm. we actually switched paid, uh, which was problematic. We should have actually, that was the second biggest lesson that I would have for entrepreneurs that are starting a software company. Don't do free versions of your software to uh -huh. collect information because you're actually collecting information from the wrong group of people. You want to be able to collect information from people that will pay you for it, not from people that will use it for free, because those two groups have different ways of thinking about how to use software. So we had, uh, I think we had like 60,000 people using the software, and we ended up with 6,000 people using the software when we switched it to a paid product. But the actual hours tracked almost doubled after that point. So there were a whole bunch of people that were kind of using it. And then we really just focused on saying, hey, you now have to pay for it. So the people that were left on the other end got really committed into using the product and ended up becoming very loyal customers from us that we ended up collecting information from to be able to build out the product in a bigger way. Regarding your internal processes and organizational structure, I mean, how did you learn, got that know-how? Because as, as, you, as you told me, it was very new. So you mm. did not have too much companies to look at for. Yeah. So it's interesting because we had two, we were starting two things that were difficult to start at that point. Uh, the first one was a SaaS business. So in 2011, software as a service companies were relatively small, much smaller than they are today. And at the same time, we were running a remote company. So we didn't have a physical office anywhere. Everyone was distributed all over planet Earth, which again was a very difficult thing to start at that point because there wasn't many informa much information on it. But the way, the thing that that gave us is a huge advantage is number one, our costs were significantly lower than anyone that um, runs an in-office startup. Um, your burn is probably going to be, I mean, our burn was probably 50 cents lower per dollar uh, than our on-premise counterparts, which gave us the advantage to be able to move around and also be bootstrapped mm -hmm. inside of launching that product. But I think the other thing that was really great in terms of understanding what to do next was it also allowed us the ability to be able to pivot quite a bit. So initially, actually, Time Doctor was going to be a productivity tool, so specifically used for personal productivity and improve your personal productivity. And that still is the core aim from the organizational perspective, but we wanted to build it for individual people to be able to optimize their own personal productivity. Uh, we still have about 2,000-ish customers that use it for personal productivity, but it's about 1% of our revenue. Uh, as it stands right now. So if we had gone down that path, 
we would have had a much smaller company than the company that we have today. And the ability to be able to pivot, I mean, that's the biggest advantage that a new upstart has versus your competitors that are much, that have a much clearer foundation because your ability to be able to try six or seven things, um, you know, you can pivot six or seven times in the amount of time that it takes one of your larger competitors to pivot once. There's this coach that um, Y Combinator brings in, and this guy is a fighter ace. Uh huh. And he won the Top Gun fighter ace competition more than any other Top Gun in the history of that competition. And he'll tell you the reason why he wins and everyone else loses is because he takes crazy shots. So he can take four shots on someone else in a dogfight before they can take one. And his hit rate is nowhere near as high as any of his other competitors, but because he can just take more shots, he ends up winning the vast majority of the time. And I think that that's how tech startups should think. Move quickly, break things, think about how you can actually figure out product market fit as quickly as humanly possible. And to me, product market fit is not how many people end up using your product. That's an, that you shouldn't even pay attention to that metric. You should look at how many people keep using your product. Uh -huh. That's the only thing that you should be focused on, particularly if you're a software company, because SaaS businesses are all about retention Referring. and being able to have the lifetime value go as long as humanly possible versus acquiring new customers. And that's actually what a lot of new tech companies that get a lot of venture capital inside of them don't recognize, which is it's not about acquiring new customers. It's about keeping the ones that you have. And now you are on eight figures, 43 different countries. What about you as a person? Any personal transformation during that period from, from, the, start, from the startup till today? Yes. So two big things. Uh, first of all, self-reflection, recognizing what you can do well and what you can't, uh, recognizing that maybe you shouldn't be the CEO of the company. Maybe you shouldn't even be at the executive level of a company. I was talking to someone else in a podcast about this. And I said, well, which would you rather have running a hundred million dollar business or owning a hundred million dollar business? Which would you choose? I personally would choose owning a hundred million dollar I business. I mean, me, right? me personal owning. <clears throat> so, but is there any but? <laughs> well, so, but that goes into my second biggest lesson, which was learning how to pivot myself from an entrepreneur to an executive. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. entrepreneurs are zero to one. Best book in the world. Peter Thiel, zero to one on business. Absolutely read it if you are interested in starting something up that's going to become big because getting from that nothing to something is the biggest part of the formula. And you require a lot of skills to be able to get to that point. Unfortunately, once you get to one and you need to get to 100 or 1,000 or 10,000, once you scale that business, the skills that you had to become good at zero to one are not the skills that you need to be able to scale the organization. You need executives inside of your company in order to be able to do that. Uh, what Entrepreneur Operating System calls the integrators, 
right? The people that are just keeping the trains running on time and not a visionary. So the visionary person, their skill sets actually become less and less important. And the integrator skill sets, the executives inside of that organization become more and more important. So we either need to transition to an executive or um, simply recognize that you staying in the business is in some cases detrimental to the success of the business. And the best thing for you to do to, would be to step away from it. But thankfully, if you own it, um, it's not a problem because you can actually put people in however you want and build the business uh, the way that you foresee. You need to be able to say to yourself, am I the right person to run this business? So that's the first lesson. And then the second lesson, which is kind of a, a more focused version of that is changing your skill set from entrepreneurship to executive. If you can't make that transition, then you shouldn't be running the business. Uh, you should make sure that you can get out of the business's way because you're going to be counterintuitively detrimental towards the mm. success of the organization. And from your perspective, which one is easier, going from entrepreneur to C-level or vice versa? From big company, uh, one day, you know, want to be entrepreneur and let's go. Let's well, the, for me, at least, the beauty of it is I can buy one of those people, but I can't buy the other. Ah. So you can buy an executive, um, but you can't buy an entrepreneur. You can't buy someone that's going to come up with a business for you and get it to a million dollars a year, as an example. That's pretty much, you can't do it. That's gotta be up to you, right? So if you're that person that has that passion and drive to be able to do it, awesome, go out and do it. If you're not the person that is inspired by sitting in meetings with accountants and lawyers all day long, which there are executives inside of me and my business partner's company that do that, um, then you need to get out of their way and you need to really have an executive team in place <clears throat> that is passionate about those things. And either you work on things like books and podcasts, <laughs> like I'm doing right now, um, or you just get completely out of their way and you make sure that they can, they can operate the business properly. Or the third, which is get good at doing those things. Um, which is another option to people. It just wasn't the option for me. What's the future of a business and how you operate it? I would argue that the future of running a business is remote and more specifically, not necessarily what everyone has perceived of remote over the last two years. January of 2020, 4% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. March of 2020, 45% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. That is the biggest transition since the Industrial Revolution, but the Industrial Revolution took 80 years. We did it in March. And no one asked in that entire massive movement <clears throat> of labor and resources whether we should actually change our managerial philosophy during that time. It was all, well, we should just recreate the office. We should be spending seven or eight hours on Zoom. That's the way that we should be running things because that's the way that we did it inside of an office. But inside of that, there's a false assumption. One of the biggest false assumptions I think we've experienced in the last decade, which is 
when on-premise companies, what remote first companies called in-office companies <clears throat> work, they pay a sunk cost every single day. So they all drive in to one place. They take the Metro, they take their cars, they walk, they bike to one particular place every single day. And everyone pays that 90 minutes to get into an office. And when they get into that office, they say to themselves, now's the time to collaborate, which is one of the biggest arguments against remote work is the lack of collaboration. But remote first companies have recognized every single time we meet, we pay that sunk cost. So every time we jump on a Zoom call, we all have to actually prepare for that meeting. We all have to jump into that call. And what I've done in my research, I researched a dozen billion dollar plus companies that were all remote before the pandemic. And the one thing that they all have in common overwhelmingly is that they manage people without actually interacting with them directly. So what, is, what do I mean by that? I call it the asynchronous mindset, and effectively that boils down to asynchronous management, the ability to be able to manage people without directly interacting with them through a Zoom call or with meeting in person. And this creates an environment where the work, um, we reference a lot in the book, uh, another book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, mm -hmm. which is the concept of optimizing every single person towards solving very difficult problems and having everything at their disposal in order to be able to solve those problems without necessarily interacting with other people. And if you can create that inside of an environment, then you can scale your organization faster than any other company, any competitor at least inside of your organization. So to me, I see the future of work undoubtedly being remote. And I would probably say, I'll put it on your podcast right now, within the next 10 years, I would foresee half of the S&P 500 to be remote and more importantly, to be asynchronous. I actually think in the next 10 years, there'll be a bigger discussion about asynchronous work than necessarily remote work because asynchronous work is really the methodology born out of remote teams that allows you to supercharge any company and allow it to scale. What about engagement? So you probably know about Gallup 12 test and uh, engagement levels are very low all around the world. Is there any difference between remote work engagement level and the classical one? Remote teams definitely have less engagement than their on-premise counterparts. But I actually think when you so we, when you look at other variables like EMPS, um, we score 73. The average remote company is around the 70 range, which is exponentially better than almost anyone in the industry. Why do people like remote work more than in-office work? And I think it's actually because there's less engagement <laughs> inside of remote work. So when you look at remote companies, I actually think you're also seeing at the same time the rise of the introverted leader, the ability to be able to have the best ideas inside of an organization adopted as opposed to the people, the wrapper around those ideas. If you go into an office today and you go into any boardroom, <clears throat> I could sit in that boardroom and without hearing anyone, I could probably tell you whose, adopt, whose idea ends up getting adopted. It is the uh, six foot two white male 
that looks like Captain America. That's generally the person that ends up having their idea adopted more than anyone else. Is their idea better than other people's? Not really. Um, probably not, actually. There's probably a lot of bias towards that. That, that person is more charismatic and better at having their ideas communicated effectively, but they probably don't have better ideas than anyone else. If anything, they probably have worse ideas than everyone else. So inside of asynchronous organizations, where you're reducing everything just to text form, essentially, more good ideas get adopted. The hit rate for good ideas go up. And yes, engagement goes down, but I would argue that actually having, and, and there's a lot of things that we discuss in the book that actually can control for engagement. Like people can enter and exit remote first companies faster than on-premise companies. But if you actually have all your process documents in place and no one has sacred knowledge, so information that they just hold to themselves that makes them unfireable, then it doesn't really matter whether or not someone leaves a job. We actually argue that people shouldn't own a position, they should operate a position. And that's a bit of a switch in people's minds, but I am currently not the CMO of the company. I currently operate the position of CMO of the company. And at any point, if I actually need to go out and solve a more difficult problem, like take a year and a half off and write a book about how to manage remote teams, I can do that and delegate those responsibilities to other team members where effectively I'm not missed. And I know that this is very difficult for a lot of people's egos to take, but if you feel like you're not missed, if the organization says like, oh, well, where's Martin? Martin left three months ago. I, I didn't even know he was gone. That is exactly the way that you should be operating your company in order to be able to have that redundancy that you need to truly achieve success. So if you want more information, go to runningremote.com. That has everything connected to both our conference, which is happening May 17th and 18th in Montreal, Canada. And the book that's launching in August that I've been talking about really focusing on Again, the methodology, the difference between what makes remote teams successful or unsuccessful. But if you can't afford my book or you can't afford a ticket to the conference and you can't fly to Montreal, uh, best place to see me would be at YouTube, youtube.com slash running remote. We put all of our talks up for free on there. So if you just wanna consume the information for free, uh, we're happy to be able to do that because our mission is we're trying to empower the world's transition towards remote work. And we think that everyone should be able to have access to that information as much as possible. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.